0: Good morning. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Valentine's is coming. Throw that in. It all kind of just hovers in on these few months. And uh, my birthday was a couple, three weeks ago. And uh, Kathy's birthday is coming up next week. So we just cram it all in right here together. It is a very expensive time of year. (laughs) Festive. We are a society that is obsessed with self-improvement. We love it. I mean, you want to sell a book, stick it in the self-help section of the bookstore. Whether it's exercise or dieting or reading or quitting smoking, we are convinced we can make ourselves better if we just give it the old college try. U.S. News & World Report says that three out of four Americans make at least one New Year's resolution. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand because that would be real embarrassing come April, <laughs> wouldn't it? But really, it's not just a new year. I mean, any big moment on the calendar motivates us to make a change, <clears throat> whether it's a new year or a new semester or a birthday milestone even a new job or a new location. We just, there's something about a significant change that gives us that oomph to improve. Uh, researchers actually have a name for this mindset. It's called the Fresh Start Effect. There's something about having a fresh start that just gives us a motivation that we didn't have otherwise, even though all we've really done is just turn the page on a calendar. 150 million Americans make New Year's resolutions. 8% see a lasting change. Why is it that that 92% of us us don't see a change? Well, there's got to be intentional action behind it. Uh, and I love that uh, Chuck mentioned this in the first hour because this is something we struggle with. Uh, an easy thing to pick on is uh, losing weight. And it's such a, it's such a rigged game. Because Thanksgiving, we think, you know, we think, all right, this Thanksgiving, it's going to be different. (laughs) It just never is. It just never is. And then about the time that we think Thanksgiving's under control, Christmas comes along, and it's just a downhill sled after that. I mean, who wouldn't vow to lose weight in January after two months of gluttony? It's just rigged. It really is. And because a diet is temporary by nature, this explains why we sort of slide back into it. We love the benefits of change, we just hate the hard work that change requires. Mark Twain said it best when he said, the only person who likes change is a wet baby. Well, in our spiritual lives though, we often find ourselves in the same dilemma. We make a commitment with God but we often go right back to where we started from. It's almost like we're on a diet with God. We just sort of make a commitment. I think about Peter in the upper room that night, and he says, Lord, I will never, even though all these others will fall away, I will never fall away. Did Peter mean it at the time? Absolutely he meant it. That same night he fell away. That very same night. So it's not a matter of just wanting it. There's got to be something that goes along with it. We're not just dieting with God. Um, how can we give God a true changed life? Or, in other words, how can we give God our very, very best? Let's look together at Leviticus chapter 7. Been a while since we've been in Leviticus, whether it's been the holidays or um, this and that. It's been a while since we've been here but we are in a series where we just sort of pick some select passages from a book that we hardly ever touch. And even in our annual reading program, if you read the Bible on an annual basis or a regular basis, we get to Leviticus and it's just sort of yawn. It's sort of tough. And it's tough because there's so many cultural hurdles that we have to jump to just understand it. And then once we understand it, it's like, okay, great, that was great for them. What does that have to say to me here in my life? I heard about a story of an elderly lady who had season tickets with her husband to college basketball games. They'd go all the time. And one of the biggest games of the year, of course, was between the University of Louisville and Kentucky. I mean, major rivalry. And they would go. And uh, during one of the games that um, between these two teams, this lady sitting there alone, with when where her husband used to sit, and uh, her, his chair is empty. And the uh, guy sitting next to her said, "I can't help but notice that you've got an empty chair. Why is your chair empty? I mean, during this game of all games, there's never an empty seat." And she says, "Well, you know, my husband recently passed away, and uh, you know he used to come and sit." With me. And they said, "Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but couldn't you like invite a friend or a relative to come with you?" She says, "Are you kidding? They're all at my husband's funeral." For some reason, when I, when I hear that story or think of that story, the word priorities comes to mind. There's nothing wrong with basketball, but somehow that passion seemed a little misplaced. The great Bobby Bowden said that when he played college baseball, he had never hit a home run, finally hit his first home run, was running around, went around first, got to second, got to third, I mean, and he's high-fiving all the way into home plate but it turns out the pitcher was given the ball, tossed it to first base, and the umpire called him out because when he, in his glee, he forgot to touch first base as he went around. And Bowden asked what he thought about that <laughs> later on, and he said, you know what? If you don't take care of first base, it doesn't matter what else you do. a? So Appropriate metaphor when we talk about priorities in many realms of life, but first of all, let's talk about God, because God is the hub. He is the center of our life, and from that hub, everything comes. Everything expands. We're in Leviticus chapter 7, and if you would, look down at verse 22, Leviticus 7, verse 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat from an ox, a sheep, or a goat. Also, the fat of an animal which dies, and the fat of an animal torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but you must not certainly eat it. For whoever eats the fat of an animal from which an offering by fire is offered to the Lord, even the person who eats, shall be cut off from his people. See what I mean? What in the world does this have to do with us? We've got cultural hurdles to jump over. Now, we could read this part about not eating fat and we could think, oh, well, that makes sense to me. I try not to do that anyway. One person came up to me recently and said, hey, Wayne, looks like you've lost some weight. And I said, thank you. And then I walked off and I thought, why do we say that to one another? What if I walked up to you and said, hey, looks like, Jim, you put on some weight. (laughs) This would not be a positive emotion in Jim's heart. (laughs) But to say, Jim, it looks like you've lost some weight, now all of a sudden we feel great about it. We thrive on fat-free stuff. We've got a whole market culture that goes on fat-free stuff, whether it's fat-free chips or ice cream or margarine or salad dressing. That way we can gorge without guilt. I mean, if it's fat-free, you can eat the whole bag of uh, potato chips. So we read passages like Leviticus 7, and we think, that makes sense. We don't like to eat fat. It's not healthy. We don't like how it looks on us. But this passage has nothing to do with how we look. It has nothing to even do with our health. It has to do with our walk with God. The command to be Jack Sprat here is... Uh, Maybe I should ask it another way. Why are we fat? Oh, I don't mean you particularly, Jim. I mean, you know, just us us generally, not anybody specifically, okay? Why are we fat? We're fat because we have plenty. We are blessed. We are in a culture that is amazingly blessed. And this is not the case, though, in Southern Africa. And Ethiopia. They don't have to market fat free ice cream in Ethiopia. It's the same with animals. An animal would be fat because it is well fed. When cowboys and ranchers move a herd back in the day, they would wait after the cattle drive and try to graze for a certain number of days before they'd take their. their cattle to market. You want to fat them up a little bit because they're going to get a better price. A fat animal is a valuable animal. This is the point. The fat of an animal represented the best, the best of that animal. And the point is that God wanted the very best. So to eat the fat meant you were eating what was God's. Look at verse 26. Not only fat, but he says... You were not to eat any blood, either of bird or animal, in any of your dwellings. Any person who eats any blood, even that person, shall be cut off from his people. The phrase cut off from his people. And notice it says in verse 26, eat blood, bird, or animal in any of your dwellings. I mean, in other words, even in your private life, even when no one sees So the idea of being cut off from your people could refer to a premature death that God would bring about because only God would know about it, and he takes it that seriously. So why is it such a big deal? Life, we're told elsewhere, is in the blood. Life is in the blood, and so if there's no blood, there is no life. Blood represented what was God's alone to give and to take. The requirement not to eat blood basically emphasized the sanctity of life and blood was special it was only to be used in the tabernacle you weren't to be uh, to eat it willy-nilly by yourself so this law against eating blood was a principle that was timeless the law against not eating fat was timeless principle and here is the principle that is relevant in our day just as it was relevant back in the time of Leviticus. And here it is. Because we are forgiven, God owns our lives and the best that we have. So we don't eat the blood because God owns life. We don't eat the fat because the, the best goes to God. God owns our lives. God owns our best. This is the principle. And this is how Leviticus can apply to our lives, even though we're not in the time of Leviticus and even though eating fat and blood is not so much an issue for us anymore legally, according to the scriptures. Um, remember the Israelite, that sacrifice represented you. If something died, you that thing that died represented you. It died in your place. So giving God the blood and the fat meant you were giving, giving God your life and your very, very best. Oswald Chambers beautifully wrote, We are to give our utmost for his highest, our best, for his glory. Listen to how Paul said it. Just listen to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Paul asks, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Because we are forgiven, because we are redeemed, because we have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, we're not our own. Paul said to the Galatians, "Um, I've died, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me. Think for a second about a mascot. What is a mascot on a sports team? What would you say the purpose of a mascot is on a sports team? Ed, any guess? A symbol. A symbol, okay? Any other guesses? Did he take your answer? <laughs> what would you say? Well, we have two mascots, so we can never figure it out, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we have a war eagle and a tiger. Okay, well, you probably ought to, you know, have a a class and decide on that which which mascot it's going to be. Yeah, that, that that's a great uh, great uh, uh, metaphor as well. A mascot, it represents the team, right? In sort of a microcosm, it's also sort of a a good luck uh, idea. But the mascot on any sports team doesn't call the plays. I mean, once the mascot has come in and everyone goes, "Yay, mascot!" They basically sort of shoo him off to the side, and he's nothing more than a glorified cheerleader at that point. The mascot doesn't call the plays. The purpose of a mascot is to represent them. And I'm sort of amazed sometimes how our society makes God our mascot. He is not the one that we follow, but he's the one that we sort of tip our hat to. And in politics, of course, this is very common, to just sort of end a speech with God Bless America. But it's okay to pray to God. And it's been amazing this week with the prayers for Damar Hamlin. Uh, Even more amazing was to see the ESPN commentator who actually prayed. I mean, stopped the whole show and said, look, let's just pray right here, right now, which was uh, pretty amazing. Tragedies tend to do that, don't they? Uh, 9-11 is an easy thing to point back to where we could see our congressmen holding hands on the Capitol steps and singing God Bless America. It's like, wow. Tragedies strip away the veneer and bring life down to its essentials. God is our national mascot until we need him to be God. And then we pray to him. We ask him to do what only he can do because only God can bring healing. Only God can bring, bring protection. And when we ask, as a nation, God bless America, what are we asking? I mean, what God are we asking? God just sort of becomes this empty, you know, plastic baggie that we can put whatever we want in it, and he is a God of our own making. When we ask God, we pray to God... To change things for us, what God are we pointing to? We're pointing to the God of the Bible. At least that's the assumption here in the United States, and I think it's true. I think it's a true assumption. But any, even a casual reading of the Bible shows us that God is, has a son, and the center of all of history is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And again, I love how Chuck said it today, God is not just love. He is also justice. There is a part of who God is that also is holy. So, and I don't mean to be too critical of our government. They're an easy target. The purpose of government is not to lead us spiritually. The purpose of government is to protect us. The, uh, it's the church's job to lead us spiritually. And even in the church, Jesus is not our mascot. He is the Lord He is the one who calls the shots. He's not the one who comes in and everyone cheers, and then we just sort of set him to the side, and he becomes a glorified cheerleader. He is the Lord of the universe who conquered death by rising from the dead, who died for our sins. He is worthy of our complete devotion. He is worthy of our best. And this is my whole point when we look back at Leviticus, that Leviticus says, even in your life, don't eat the fat, don't eat the blood. There are practical things that you do because these things belong to God. In our lives, when we realize Jesus has died for our sins, my life is not my own. I live for Jesus Christ. Now, let's leave Leviticus and turn to Ephesians, and we're going to look at three specific areas where we can give God our best. Ephesians 5. On your way to Ephesians 5, let me read to you this verse from Malachi. Uh, In Malachi's time, of course, this is toward the end of the Old Testament, the sacrificial system had been in place for a thousand years, well over a thousand years. And the temptation to not give the best to God was still there. Malachi 1 verse 8 says this, when you present the blind animal for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you, when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Would you offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? God required a perfect sacrifice, and they were sort of giving God the, you know, the ones that are lame. Let's, let's, let's donate to, to the Lord the one that we don't really want. And uh, Malachi says, would you do that to your governor? Imagine if the governor of our state was coming to dinner at your house. Dave, would you would you pull out the cold meatloaf from last week and just sort of slice it, microwave it, and give it to the governor? Maybe even maybe you'd even open a, a can of cold corn and dump it there on his plate as well. If the governor came to your house, you would not do that. Imagine if Chuck said, "Hey, I'd like to come to your house for dinner tonight." You're not gonna serve Chuck a TV dinner you're actually going to open the cookbook and make something happen. You're going to give him your best. Malachi is saying this is is the way it is with God, and we're not just talking animals. We're talking our lives. God deserves the best in our life because our lives are not ours. Ephesians 5, verse 15. Look down at Ephesians 5, verse 15. Paul writes, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So I mentioned by way of principle that because we're forgiven, God deserves the best of our life. And here's number one, your time. Your time, and think of each of these. We're going to mention three. Think of each of these as areas of stewardship. Now, it's sort of a weird word; we don't use a lot, but there's hardly a better word: steward. What is a steward? Stewardship means that you are responsible for something that isn't yours. And here, we're told that we are stewards, or that we are to uh, make the most of our time. Nothing in our life is our life. It is God's. It is all God's. We are his. And we are told to give our very best to God. Uh, The Bible is actually jammed with people, imperfect people, who gave their very best to God. Think of a few. Abraham gave his best when he gave Isaac. Hannah gave Samuel. David said, I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. Mary of Bethany anointed Jesus With perfume that was worth a year's salary. These were giving God your best. And God says that your time, how you spend your time, is something that we can give God. Wisdom, Paul writes, is not wasting time, but redeeming your time. And that's what the word here in verse 16 means, wisdom, uh, making the most of your time. Literally, the original language says redeeming the time. It's, a, it's a, a, a word that has to do with buying stuff. In fact, Paul lived in Ephesus, where he wrote this to the Ephesians there, and he lived there in Ephesus for between two and three years during his uh, third missionary journey. And while he was there, he worked regularly in the marketplace. The Greek word is the agora. And when he writes this this verse, he's to the Ephesians who remember Paul working in the marketplace or the agora. He says, "Verse sixteen, redeeming the time because the days are evil, making the most of your time." And the word that he uses there for redeeming is literally the word exagorazzo. We get the you see hear the word agora in there, and it means you buy it out, you redeem your time, you make the most of that time because the days are evil. It's really easy in a culture where God is our mascot to fritter away our time, to consider it our own and to not consider it God's. But our time is the Lord's. Our intention is to use our time for God. But isn't it amazing how often that we have good reasons not to do it? And I mean good reasons not to do it. Uh, The same is true with our personal time with God each day. Reading the Bible, personal prayer, confession. There's a lot of good reasons I have to not do that every day. I mean, i got lots to do. And you do too. Your list is probably as long as mine is. And we can get out of bed, and if we don't, for me, if I don't, first thing be in this book, and first thing with my coffee, first thing in this book, and first thing with my heart open to God, honestly, it probably won't happen. I can have good intentions to make it happen later in the day, but it, it just doesn't happen. It's got to be first for me or it won't happen. But there's a lot of good reasons where we cannot be involved both personally in the scriptures on our walk with God and be involved uh, in our in the ministry somehow. We can think, you know, things are crazy right now at work, or it's not a good time for me. Uh, You know, when this happens, when that happens, when this money comes in, later, 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 then I'll give God the priority that I need to. But I don't know if you've noticed, but that happens all the time. Last year was just like the year before when we were telling ourselves, when we were kidding ourselves with that excuse and this year will be exactly the same if we continue to tell ourselves or to justify our lack of giving God the time because we're looking for um, we're waiting for things to just work out, for serving God to be convenient. It never will be. My friend, if you are waiting for things to just work out to give God the priority in your life, you never will, and I never will. Because our world is a rushing current going the opposite direction. And if we quit paddling for a moment, we will eventually find ourselves downstream. We've got to paddle hard. Spending time in the Word of God on a regular, if not daily basis, is critical to you spiritually. Just like eating is critical to you physically. We wouldn't think twice about skipping a meal. And yet, how often do we do that with the Scripture? I've been uh, in my Bible reading program, I started reading the Bible again this year, and I ran across Proverbs chapter 2. And I'm going to turn there real quick, because I've got it marked here. You can turn or you can listen, Proverbs 2, starting right in verse 1. Why should you make time in the Word of God a priority in your day? Here's why. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures... Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice And he preserves the way of his godly ones, then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. This only comes by time in the Bible, it doesn't come by reading books about the Bible. It doesn't come by browsing in Barnes & Noble. It certainly doesn't come by watching television. It comes from the direct source of Scripture. The quality of your life is the quality of your spiritual life. The quality of your life is the quality of your spiritual life. If you've got a great spiritual life, if your walk with God is solid, anything, Anything can happen to you, and you will stand strong with the Lord. But if your walk with God is just sort of a mascot, just sort of a diet, just sort of a, you know, I'll get around to it when circumstances allow me, and then the bottom drops out, it's tough. In fact, the book of Proverbs talks about that as well, that wisdom is to be got while you can get it. The time to get wisdom is not when you need it. The time to get wisdom is when you don't need it for those times that come when you do. So your time is not yours. It is God's, and we give it to him. I give it to him. Speaking of um, time, turn back a couple of books, if you would, if you're still in Ephesians, and look at 2 Corinthians Chapter 8, and we'll talk about the second of the three. The second of the three has to do with money. Now, I'm looking around in the class here, and I don't see anybody on staff at the church, which is a good thing. There's nobody in here that's paid to be here. I don't earn anything by doing this, I'm a volunteer just like many of y'all. And so that gives us – it's not that peop, that a pastor can't teach 2 Corinthians 8. He absolutely can and absolutely should. But every time you hear a pastor talking about money, you just sort of go, hmm, we're sort of predispositioned to wonder. I know why you're saying that. But here as true laymen and laywomen – we read the Word of God with absolutely zero ulterior motive. The second, uh, the second aspect is our treasure. First, it is our time, and then second is our treasure. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. And I love how the New International Version translates it. Paul writes, just as you excel in everything, in faith, In speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Interesting comparison, isn't it? Paul says we wouldn't think twice about compromising in our spiritual life with regard to our faith or our speech or our knowledge or our love, but money, for some reason, seems to be that last Thing that gets baptized in our lives. In fact, I saw a cartoon one time that shows this pastor about to baptize this guy, and the next scene shows him baptizing him, but the guy has his wallet up above the water. <laughs> it's like God, you get everything else, but that. And the truth is, if he doesn't get everything, he doesn't have anything. We can't separate spiritual spirituality from. Spending, We can't say that we believe in something that we don't support. Think about other areas of our life. We spend big bucks to go out to eat. These days, it's even bigger bucks. We spend a lot of money to go to the grocery store. And I mean, it's like, have you looked at the price of pickles lately? Oh, and I love pickles. We'll drop 30 bucks to go to a two-hour movie, and half of that is just for the popcorn we'll do it because we value it what we value gets our money jesus said it well where your treasure is there will your heart be also we often think of it just the opposite where your heart is there your treasure will be jesus says where your treasure is that's where your heart is and you really want to know where your heart is look at where your money is jesus said it well in fact jesus taught more on money than, on anybody, than anybody else, and he taught more on money than on heaven and hell combined. It's a big deal in our lives. Jesus said, beware of covetousness, for a man's life doesn't consist of the things he possesses. Ouch. And we possess a lot. We left Leviticus, but you, you may remember in Leviticus 7 where we were. Uh, They're at the bottom of that same chapter, is a context where the Israelites were commanded to give publicly and to give directly in their work to God. The New Testament carries this command as well, as we see here in 2 Corinthians 8. We excel in everything. Paul says, make sure that you're also excelling in this grace of giving. The work of the Lord occurs because people Give. Now, turn back, if you would, one book to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. I'm amazed at how generous this class is. Uh, Sometimes on the the leadership committee, we'll get together and talk about this and that. And we talked about uh, giving to our missionaries over this last holiday, and the outpouring was amazing. And I'm sure that the missionaries were exceedingly grateful to get that. Um, We all do it together. 1 Corinthians 12 looks at the third of our three areas that we're focusing on regarding God owns our lives and the best we have. First was our time. Second was our treasure. And finally, in verse 7, our talent. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul writes, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good." Some of the words there are a little uh, wooden, manifestation, what does that mean? The the idea of manifestation is that, that the Spirit of God manifests or shows itself through the spiritual gifts. In other words, we see the life of God in us when we exercise our spiritual gifts. But notice again the details. To each one, that's to every individual Christian, is given the manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, every one of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ has been given a manifestation of the Spirit or a spiritual gift of some kind. And its purpose, we're told, is for the common good. To each one, for everyone. To each one, for everyone. Which means your particular gift is not a gift to you. It is God's gift to the church through you. Your gift is the gift to the church. The Spirit of God manifests, basically shows up in practical ways. And there's a list that's given here. It's not. Uh, it's not an exhaustive list. There are many lists, several lists throughout the New Testament. None of them are identical, which shows that they are selective, that they are illustrative, that there is a larger group, maybe even some that aren't mentioned. But the point isn't uh, which particular gift you know are we going to hone in on. The, gift, the, the point is make sure you are involved. God has give, gifted you in a certain way, make sure that you're involved. And 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 let the Lord use you in a powerful way. Now, I have you turn one more place, if you don't mind. Exodus chapter 32. So second book of the Bible, look at chapter 32. And once again, this is a benefit of just reading. I, didn't, I came across this verse and this principle as I was just reading, I think it was last year, uh, through the Bible, and I was just struck by the fact that not only spiritual gifts, but gifts that we might think aren't very spiritual at all, God powerfully uses for his work. Exodus 32, start in verse 2. 32 Verse 2. The Lord says, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship, to make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, in the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, I myself have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahishamak of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all who are skillful I have put skill that they may make all that I have commanded you. Turn a couple more chapters over. Look at chapter 35. What's wrong? Oh. What what's a chapter between friends? Uh, My spiritual gift is not clarity, obviously. I'm sorry about that. Exodus thirty one. Yeah. My my Bible is so goofy. It tells it says Exodus thirty two at the top, even though Exodus thirty two doesn't start at the bottom. So this is a, my, a continual gripe I have with my edition. I'm sorry, it's Exodus 31, verse 1. Boy, that is really off, like a whole chapter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, 32, we're going to talk about how to make the golden calf. Yeah. Yes, this is, this is wrong. All right, sorry. Look back, Exodus 31, verse 2. We'll try it again. Sorry about that. Verse 2, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. And then it goes on to give the specific details of that. And this isn't really very spiritual, is it? God gifted this guy as a carver, as a woodworker, as a as a, a cutting a person who cuts stones. Now flip a couple more chapters to Exodus thirty five. And yes it is Exodus thirty five. <laughs> Exodus thirty five, verse ten. Let every skillful man among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Look at verse twenty five. And all the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen, and all the women whose hearts stirred with skill spun the goats here." I love these verses because it shows that God gives natural gifts for His glory, just like spiritual gifts. Here in the church, we we tend to glorify spiritual gifts until it's time for the worship team to take the stage. Then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, we, the natural gift's what we want at that point. I mean, yeah, it's great if, if they can actually do something spiritual, but if they're off pitch, ain't nothing spiritual about that. That's hard work to worship when they're off pitch. We have exceedingly gifted musicians in, in this particular body of Christ, and that is a gift from the cradle that they have nurtured through hard work and discipline and practice. And it's some something that, who knows, maybe even some in the orchestra don't know Christ. don't know. I don't know them. I hope they do. And if not, it's great that they're here because they get to hear about the gospel. But my point is this. If you're not sure what your spiritual gift is, okay, but you know what you're gifted at. You know what the Lord has gifted you at naturally because probably you've made a career out of it. People pay you money outside in the secular world to do whatever it is you're good at. How can you use that ability and gift as well to minister to the body of Christ? Our talent, our time, our treasure, our talent, Paul says, to each one is given for the common good. I love this verse from 1 Chronicles. Just listen to 1 Chronicles 15.22. It says, Kenaniah, the head Levite, was in charge of the singing. That was his responsibility because he was good at it. Isn't that great? Why was, he, why was he given charge of it? Because he was good at it. Said very simply, and that is often why we are given responsibility as well. I love what uh, the celebrated pianist, Kurt Kaiser, said. said something that his dad taught him. He said, whatever gift you have been given, it is your responsibility to burnish it, shine it, and make it the best that it can be, and then give it back to the one from whom you received it. So each of these things that we're talking about, whether it's time, treasure, talent, all boils down to that one word that I mentioned, stewardship. Our life is not our life. Our life is God's life. For those in Leviticus, they didn't eat the blood, they didn't eat the fat. Why? Because God, life is God's, the best is God's. Same is true with us. The best we have in our lives is God's. So let me ask you, what's going to make this year any different than last year? I mean, really. What's going to make this year any different than last decade or decades of your life? where we have just sort of rocked along with the backburner diet mascot of a god. Stewardship might be the one thing that turns the corner for us. Our life is not our own. Let's pray. How grateful, Lord, we are that you gave the, the best You gave your best. You gave Jesus to us. You gave his life for us, the very best. He gave up his life. He gave up his blood for us. And because we are forgiven, because we have placed our faith in Christ who died for our sins, we have an obligation And it is not to the flesh, it's not to our own selfish desires, it's to you. As Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What Paul said was true for him is true for each of us, that our lives are yours, Lord. The very best we have of our time, of our treasure, our talent, it's yours, And we open our hand with all these things and ask that you would take them and use them in the season of life that you have us in that's appropriate, that we would not face or or feel the burden of undue guilt, but we would feel the burden of obligation, of stewardship. How can we give our time, our talent, our treasure to you for your glory? Thank you for the year before us, for its potential. And, Father, by your grace, may it not just be another year. May it make a difference because of our stewardship. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you.